One of the things that Marina and I have really enjoyed in our very short time in London is walking from the hotel to the church. So we're in the Premier Inn around the corner in Faradin, and we get to pass on our way to the church the, the plaque to William Wallace. And then after that, we get to pass the plaque that's right next to it to the famous martyrs. John Roger, who was burned at the stake for putting the Bible in English. And then we get to walk around the corner, come into Postman's Park, and see there on the back wall that, that wall of commemoration to people who have given their lives in sacrifice for others. It's fascinating when you have the opportunity to stop and appreciate People's sacrifice on behalf of others or their beliefs or their convictions. This morning I'd like us to stop and appreciate the sacrifice made by the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. My prayer for us this morning is that we would go in our mind's eye to that holy location. That like Isaiah, we would stand beneath the cross of Golgotha. And that we would see Christ and him crucified. Some commentators writing on this passage love to point out that this is if you like the Mount Everest of Old, Test- of Old Testament revelation regarding salvation. They, they have said it, it looks like Isaiah were standing under the cross itself when he penned these words. Others have said when we come to this passage, we're on holy ground because we must tread carefully and come reverently. Isaiah, with his unique and inspired vantage point, writing some 700 years before the historic event of the crucifixion, tells us with pinpoint precision the details of the cross and its meaning for us. So come, come in your mind's eye with me. Let's see Christ and him crucified. If you've got your Bibles there, you'll see that Isaiah chapter 52 through 53 divides into five stanza, five stanzas, depending on which Bible translation you have. Each stanza, uh, as they go, as they proceed, they get longer. And we, we don't have time to, to, to go through this verse by verse. We're going to pull out some vital truths and and we're going to use that passage as well in in John 19 to help us in our meditation of the cross if you're someone who takes headings I've got three simple points number one behold the man number two behold the man upon the cross and number three behold the outcome of the cross Look at the three opening words of Isaiah 52, verse 13. Behold my servant. That first word, behold, is crucially important 
to understanding this passage. Here's why. It is the only imperative. It is the only command. The the application is up front. Isaiah, speaking on God's behalf, wants us to do one thing. Look. See. Gaze at. This individual who's called my servant. Let's behold the man. Look at verse 14. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. What Isaiah says here is this. When people looked at Jesus with the naked eye at a certain point in his life, they wondered to themselves, Is he human? He was marred, disfigured beyond that of any man, beyond human likeness. And the question that comes to our mind is, what moment of his life was his figure disfigured, his form deformed? Well, in his Humiliation and the events leading up to the cross and then there upon the cross. In John 19, verse 1, Pontius Pilate brought Jesus out to be flogged, whipped. Now, the Jews, authorities, when they flogged someone, because of the Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter 24, it said you could never flog someone more than 40 times, whip them more than 40 times. So the Jews ensured that a Jewish criminal would only be whipped 39 times. Thing is, it wasn't the Jews that flogged Jesus. It was the Romans. And the Romans, they didn't have to hold to Jewish law or tradition. The gospel are conspicuously silent on how many times Jesus was whipped. What we, what we know of some of the whippings is that what would happen is the individual would be stripped naked, tied to a post. A whip would be used that had metal and bone in it. And then they would proceed to whip the individual. Resulting in the person's back being lacerated their skin torn and ripped off (laughs) like shredded paper. Behold the man. This is what happened to Jesus. But this was just, in many ways, the, the, the beginning because we read that he wasn't only flogged, he was also beaten. His face was buffeted with countless blows. The Roman soldiers beat him up badly, bruising him, blooding his face, blow after blow. The other gospels tell us they spat on him, they mocked him, they ridiculed him. They sought to torture and torment him. We we, we can't begin to imagine what Jesus must have looked like after this moment, but I remember a few years ago, in fact probably a decade ago, there was a, a... 
a news story. It was actually about an academic living in Wimbledon in London, if I remember correctly, Paul Colher, and his house was robbed by a gang of Polish thugs. And I can remember watching this news story because they interviewed him. I could barely look at the TV screen because his face was so bloodied and bruised. He looked utterly, utterly disfigured. Here's the thing. Jesus wasn't beaten up by a gang of thugs. He was beaten up by professionals. Well-trained, well-skilled Roman soldiers. Experts in inflicting pain. At this point, Jesus' appearance was no doubt marred. But they didn't stop there. The Roman soldiers placed a barbed wire, light spikes in the crown of thorns, and they forced it on his forehead, puncturing and piercing the tender part of his skin. Behold the man. Now, little did these men know what they were doing. They were mocking him. They were scoffing at him. We read in John 19, they were saying, Hail, King of the Jews. The crown of thorns was a perfect, if you like, crown for Jesus. Because it reveals why he came. Why did Jesus come? To reverse the curse. Genesis chapter 3. Remember Adam and he fall into sin. And God says to Adam, Cursed is the ground because of you. And what will happen is that there will be thorns and thistles. And so in many ways, Jesus' crown of thorns, it speaks to the fact that he had come to redeem us from the curse of the law by becoming the curse for us. And so in the madness of the mockery, the deep irony is that while they mocked him without knowing it, they spoke truth about him. They didn't see what many of us have come to see, having our eyes opened by the Holy Spirit. This man is the saviour of the world. He is the king of kings. Now, just to add insult to injury, Pontius Pilate had Jesus dressed up with a purple robe. And then he took him out on the balcony in front of the jeering crowds below. Verse 5 says this, So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to the crowd, Behold the man! Pontius Pilate did not have a clue as to the deeper things behind his statement. You know, these words from Pilate's perspective were words of dire scorn and irony because no one looked less like a man than Jesus in this moment. 
I imagine that as the crowds looked up at Jesus and as they were shouting, crucify him, crucify him, they weren't thinking to themselves, is he now our Messiah? They were thinking to themselves, is he human? Who is he? Now, here's a warning. Pontius Pilate said, behold the man. But in many ways, he was blind to the man. You see, he he said two occasions in John 19, there's no guilt in him. He's done nothing wrong. But not once did he recognize this man is the son of God, the king of kings, the one who has authority over him. And so often we can be blind to the man. So heed this warning. Behold the man. Let's continue to behold the man. One one more verse, right? Chapter 53, verse 2 says this. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. No beauty that we should desire him. Isaiah's just been saying that he was like a tender plant. So he's speaking about Jesus and the incarnation and how he was born and then how he was raised and reared. Now he says about Jesus, he had no form, no, no majesty. You know, one of the reasons that the people didn't worship Jesus as they ought to have, at least on this occasion, was because he didn't look like a king. I was just in the hotel this morning and there was lots of news. I don't know what the news is, but there's something big happening with the Queen's Jubilee and it was on the television screen. And just one of the images that flashed by was of Will and Kate. And I was thinking of them as royalty. And they, they look royal because they're beautiful. And they, they just look like that perfect royal company couple. But, but you look at Jesus. Well, according to Isaiah, he had no form or majesty. There's nothing royal about him that we would see. In fact, he, he kind of says he had no beauty that we should desire him or would be attracted to him. If we'd lived in the first century and we'd set our eyes upon Jesus, he was quite plain. Probably looked like an untutored Galilean peasant. Now, Now just meditate on that for a moment. We live in a culture obsessed with beauty. Jesus didn't have Hollywood celebrity looks. He was no poster boy of his generation. But he's the man. He's the perfect portrait of what it is to be human. He's perfect, man. You, you know, it, it, in one sense, no beauty in that, in that perhaps attractive physical form, but in a completely other sense as we sang in Psalm 27 if we could gaze upon the one who's never thought a sinful thought in his life who's never been sinfully angry whose brow's never been ruffled by a harsh word or or, or something happening we would see that Jesus is the altogether lovely one as the Song of Solomon says he's the fairest among 10,000 and yet, when people looked at him, they, they, they saw nothing in him that 
made them think much of him. And it's no wonder Isaiah begins Isaiah 53 saying, Who would ever believe this message? Behold the man. This man is our God. Verse 3. He was despised, rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised. And we deemed him not. You know what's really interesting? Up until this point, the pronoun that's been used is they. So it's used of God's people being spectators. But at the end of verse 3, it changes and it's we. So when Harrison said, in John 19, where are we? We're among the crowd. We're among the religious authorities. We, that's you and me, we esteemed him not. He he was despised. Twice it says despised at the start of verse 3 and then near the end of verse 3. He was despised. He was not admired. People had no regard for him. Rejected him. He came to his own people and they rejected him. And, And just note this, right? It's in that context that says he was a man of sorrows. So my, my, my old, old testament professor, late, old, um, late professor, John L. Mackay said this. While other aspects of his suffering mentioned later in the song are explicitly linked with the crucifixion, what's in view here is specifically the heart from being spurned by mankind. Jesus was a man of sorrows because he was rejected, despised. Acquainted with grief as he took upon himself the grief of his people as he pastored them and as he lived among them. Some of you might be suffering. Some of you might be going through a really hard time. Some of you might know deep loneliness and isolation, or you've at least known it in recent months. Some of you might think to yourself, no one knows my pain, no one knows my anguish. Hear me say this lovingly. You're mistaken. There is someone who knows, who knows you better than you know yourself. And there is someone who knows deep mental anguish, sorrow, and who is acquainted with grief. Behold the man. It's a suffering servant. And that means if you're finding life hard, if I'm finding life hard, we can turn to him with the confidence knowing that he understands our suffering, pain, sorrow, and grief. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Hallelujah, what a savior. But here's the thing, Jesus' suffering makes him a man not just able to relate to us but now we're going to see it makes him a man who's able to save us look at verse 4 behold the man now upon the cross beginning verse 4 we transition from beholding him now to him on the cross and 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 it opens with that word surely in the hebrew it's emphatic it's indeed indeed he has Born our griefs and carried our sorrows. Indeed, he is, he was wounded for our transgressions and he was crushed for our iniquities. Let's stand and gaze upon 
our Saviour on the cross. These words are profound and poignant. Let's not rush over them in haste. If you were a Jew reading this, right, you would hear the whispers of the Old Testament sacrificial system. He has borne. He has carried. Oh, that, that's Leviticus 16. That's the day of atonement. That's the high priest laying his hands on the goat, symbolically the goat taking the sins of the people, him sacrificing the goat, taking the blood, and then sprinkling it on the mercy seat to symbolically bear away the sins of his people. And then taking another goat, the scapegoat, laying his hands on it, confessing their sins, and then sending the scapegoat into the wilderness, carried away. He, surely, the one upon the cross, he has died as a substitute. In this passage, we've got the, one of the greatest doctrines in all Holy Scripture, penal substitutionary atonement. Jesus substituting himself on our behalf. And this passage is so clear on that. Jesus died for others. Jesus died in the place of his people. Now, a Jewish reader, having been acquainted with the, the scriptures of the Old Testament, would know sacrifice has been, and substitution has been from the very beginning. Garden of Eden, Anil killed, clothed Adam and Eve. Cain and Abel, it's a story of sacrifice. Abraham and Isaac, story of substitution. Passover, firstborn lamb, firstborn son. Substitution. What makes this substitution unique is that in the Old Testament, we see animals being sacrificed. But the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away the sins. People. This is a person. This is the man. This is Jesus. You see, if our sin is to be taken away, it has to be like for like. It's interesting that that, that point's made because in verse 7, in verse 6, we're, we're described as sheep. We're all like sheep. We've gone astray, turned each other their own way. And in verse 7, Jesus is like a lamb. He's like a sheep. There's that sense of equivalence again, like for like. But why did God have to become man? Because any sacrifice made in the Old Testament, it was to be perfect, spotless, without blemish. No perfect man, woman has ever lived. We needed perfect man. So God became man and died for us. You know, as, as, you, you, get, as you read through this passage, it's, it's like Isaiah, he really wants to impress upon us. He died in our place. But he died for us. Listen, our sins. So, so there's that language. It's, it's, it's our, our griefs, our sorrows, our transgressions, our iniquities. We've gone astray, turned to our own way. The iniquity was laid on him. The big point is that he did not die because of anything he had done. He died because of what you and I had 
done. Behold the man upon the cross. And, and, and the other point that it seems that Isaiah's at pains speaking, given this report, is to make clear that Jesus was innocent. There was no deceit in his mouth. In John 19, we've read that. Pontius Pilate twice says, there's no guilt in this man. I can't find any guilt. He's innocent. And so as we behold the man upon the cross, here's the staggering thing. The sinless one dies for sinful ones. The righteous for the unrighteous. He was made to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I don't know if you've heard this story. Um, it's a story of a, a young mum and, and her young son. They, they lived in a state in America. I can't, I can't remember which one it was. And One night before they were going to bed, they, they, they'd watched the weather report on television and said there was going to be tornadoes coming through their area. And upstairs, went to bed that night, slept well, but were worried about, is anything going to happen to them? Next morning, they, they woke up downstairs, took her son, mother, opened the door. And as they stood in the patio, they surveyed the scene. And these tornadoes had utterly obliterated their town. And the young mom looked down at her son. And the young son, feeling his mother's eyes upon him, quickly looked up at his mother and said, Mom, honestly, it wasn't me. Here's the thing, though. Behold the man upon the cross. It was you and me. It was our sin that nailed him there. Martin Luther put it like this. We carry around in our pockets the nails that crucified Christ. We might not have been there physically, but morally speaking, we were there. Sobering. When you, you take the, 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 the pronoun hour and you change it to my, my sin, my transgressions, my iniquities. That's my pride. That's my lust. That's my gossip. That's my failure to love God. That is what Jesus paid for. Now, now, as we behold the man upon the cross, there's something that Harrison made allusion to. And it is so important that we don't miss it. It's the most stunning part of his suffering. It was the Lord who laid in him the iniquity of us all. It was the Lord's will to crush him. Someone asks you, who's responsible for the death of this man? How would you answer that? The Apostle Peter. Jesus, this Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Listen, Jesus and the Father, before the foundations of this earth were set, in the covenant of redemption, planned and purposed this, and it was the Father who laid in him the iniquity of us all. It was the Father will to crush him. But but so you, you don't get a distorted understanding of penal substitution. You must understand that the Son was so willingly and gladly 
there on the cross. We see that in this, this Isaiah chapter 3. It says, He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Listen. His silence speaks volumes. He could have called down legions from heaven and stopped himself being crucified. He didn't. He remained silent because it was his will to suffer for us. That should move us. That should marvel us. And listen, as you're hearing this and we're beholding the man upon the cross, this isn't to make us feel guilty. This is ultimately to make us feel grateful. The Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. Has anyone ever loved you like this? Anything close to this? Laid down their life on your behalf. God is saying in the cross, I love you this much. I think of the hymn writer, and can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? Now, let's just very quickly deal with our final point. Behold, come off the cross. Now, you'll notice that when I was reading, there had to be a change in tone halfway through verse 10. Because it's, Isaiah 53 is taken up with Christ's death and suffering. But listen, his suffering and death are not the last word in this passage. If they don't, if, if they had been, we'd all be wondering, did his perfect life, did his sacrificial death achieve anything? Did the penal substitutionary atonement work? And so we come to the third point. Behold the outcome of the cross. Look at what it says halfway through verse 10. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. If Isaiah, we see, it was like he was standing under the cross. There's another sense in which it's like he also got the vantage point of standing next to an empty tomb. Because Jesus, we read here, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong their days. He, he's no longer dead. He is alive. And not only do we see the glorious resurrection, but Isaiah makes clear allusion to the exaltation of Christ, that Christ was raised to the highest. Isaiah 52, verse 1, uh, 13, Behold my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and exalted. Behold the outcome of the cross, because Jesus' death satisfied God's justice. He was raised in glorious vindication of defeating our enemy of sin and death. It's it's amazing what this goes on to say. It it also says that he's a victorious conquering king. Look look at what it says there. Uh, Verse 12, I will divide him a portion with the many and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Do you know what Jesus' spoil is? Do you know what his treasure is, his reward is? 
It's you and me who have put our faith and trust in him. It's you and me who have beheld him with the eyes of faith. It's you and me who have trusted in our Savior. We're the trophies of his grace. And and what's so amazing is all that Christ has is that he continues to bless us. I spoke about penal substitution and atonement and I said that, you know, he who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. That's double imputation. He took our sin, we get his righteousness. What a gift. But the very last verse says he makes intercession for transgressors. Do you know, in light of his death and his glorious ascension to the right hand of God the Father, he prays for you and me. Christ prays as the conquering king for us. You know, as, I, as I begin this ministry, my confidence is far be it from to put me, my confidence in anything. Me, Harrison, the elders, my confidence is in him. One of the, the most encouraging things is in light of his death and his resurrection and in his glorious heavenly exaltation and intercession, he's done it all. And it's my joy, Harrison's joy, our joy to proclaim Christ and him crucified. Now, now, now we've beheld the man, we've beheld the, the man upon the cross, we've beheld the outcome of the cross, but listen, what's our response? Our response ought to be joy. Joy unspeakable. Full of glory. Do you know that in heaven right now, they are joyfully worshipping the Lamb who was slain. In that sense, heaven never gets beyond the cross. The angels are singing, worthy is the Lamb who was slain. At the heart of the Christian faith is the worship of our Savior and for his death on the cross. And so as we behold him, as we come and we've stood under the cross in our mind's eye, our response to this should be joy. As we go from here this week into our work, into our homes, into our business, it should be the joy of the Lord that is our strength. Ever praising. Ever Rejoicing. If you're here this morning, you've never beheld Jesus. That is, you've never looked to him for salvation. Look to him and be saved. And if you're here and you're a Christian and you, you know him and you love him, every day, look to him. We need to We need our Savior daily. We need to go to the cross daily. It is the wellspring of our joy, the mainstay of our life. We need to go beneath the cross of Jesus. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, How could we ever thank you enough 
for what you planned and purposed with your Son and the Spirit in eternity past. Our Father, as we've come and in our mind's eye beheld your Son and our Savior, we stand in awe. We marvel at the madness of the mayhem when he was tortured. We marvel at him with the purple robe and the crown of thorns on his brow. We marvel because our sins nailed him to that cross. O Lord our God, we praise you for Christ and him crucified. We pray that that the joy of having sins forgiven, of looking unto him for salvation, oh, it would be our strength. God, renew our confidence in your son and in his finished work. Lord, as we, as we go to serve you this week, we pray that in response to all that's been done for us, that our every motivation would be grateful service. We are such unworthy recipients of your blessing. The blessing of salvation. We are such unworthy recipients of the precious promises of your word. And yet they are ours in Christ. So God, we pray that you, the great, the great God of heaven and earth, would bless, continue to bless us in him as we live for your glory. Lord, as we begin this ministry together, we thank you that it's rooted and grounded in Christ's love for us. We pray that you would help us together as all of the saints to grasp high, how deep, how wide, how long is a love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge is for us. God, we ask that you the one who is able to do and beyond anything we could ever ask and imagine would be at work in us for the glory of you, your son, in this church and in this city. And we pray it in his precious name. Amen.